1: Live from the NASDAQ market Site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Hitting the bullseye shares a target seeing their best gain in over four years after blowing past expectations for the latest quarter. Has the retailer really put all its troubles behind it? Plus, high-stakes summit, President Biden and Xi meeting in the Bay Area this afternoon. But what might be even more consequential tonight's summit with CEOs? What could come out of that meeting and what it might mean for doing business with China? And later, Disney catches the eye of another activist, a stock not named Lily or Novo that is benefiting from the weight loss drug boom, and two tech stocks take a tumble after their latest reports were digging into those numbers were dialed into those conference calls. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Bono and Eisen, and Mike Coe. We start off tonight with Target's monster move. The stock jumping almost 18% after the retailer delivered a massive third quarter earnings beat, earnings per share, 22 cents above street estimates. But the pressure on revenue still notable. Target's comp sales dropping again, this time by 5%. The company giving another warning about deal hungry shoppers and weaker discretionary spending. Even with today's pop, Target shares are getting crushed. This year, the big box retailer is down almost 13 percent since January. So is it all clear for Target? Did we see an inflection point? Karen, what was it like this morning? You woke up, you're peeking out from under
2: the cover. (laughs) You're like, what's going to happen? I know. Very (laughs) nervous, very nervous. And then very, very relieved. I mean, I think that's there's a lot of relief rally in this. The same-store sales were down. They weren't down as much as we thought. But they seemed to get their handle on a lot of things that had been troubling in the past. Mm-hmm. Inventory, that was one. So that really came down. That was nice. So their, their margins were good, were better than expected. That also was nice. Um, shrink, which they had had as a significant problem, that was better than expected. So it really seemed to feel like, okay, we got our mojo back. We're on top of things now. The guidance they gave for the fourth quarter was wide. That's OK. You know, I never think they should have guidance anyway, but the street makes them. So I think that the idea of we don't know what multiple to give this because we don't know they have a handle on their business. I hope that is in the rearview mirror now. And so even with this move, this is not crazy expensive at all. It was really, really nice to see. Also, you know, we'll see Walmart tomorrow. I think it bodes well for Walmart, but was happy with that giant pop today and, and it really I mean the multiple they got on that twenty two cent beat is eight whatever it was, eighteen dollars, nineteen dollars, that's an enormous multiple on a twenty two yeah. cent beat. So uh just um I think I think the worst is behind it.
3: Yeah, it was a nice move on that Walmart target spread today. Um mm-hmm. but you know, this just I think you framed it the right way because this isn't a tell on the consumer. This is a tell on target. Yeah. Um, you're experiencing some affordable joy, which is not yeah. that like that's yeah. their slogan, I think. Anyway, um, and, and I agree the dynamics here around, first of all, the comps on shrink and theft were, were also just easier. Um, inventory down 14 percent year over year. Uh, the, the net profitability of the business is really quite interesting. I mean, they do seem like they've gotten a lot of, of the, the elements of uh, the bigger problems out of the way. I think you just get to a place also on sales. If you look at a forward 12-month sales, price to sales, um, we're down to kind of 0.5, which is where it was on a pre-COVID you know, level uh, before it went into that massive growth period. So um, they talked about a couple of their segments that were actually doing better. Beauty was up you know, uh, high single digits. Uh, we know kind of what's been going on with the rest of the discretionary profile, so that wasn't really a surprise. Um, I just think it's about a company that's being run better. And, and frankly, I think sentiment just got so awful um, that this was the, the, the kind of report that obviously um, could deliver an outsized move to the upside.
1: Discretionary inventory was down 19 percent, which is definitely a, a move in the right direction. And in terms of margins, a lot of analysts are pointing out the progress we've seen in margins, lower freight costs, lower fulfillment costs, et cetera, really helping there. Yeah,
4: and, and to that margin story, the fact that they got their inventories under control, I think total margins were down about 11%, but like you said, uh, that particular segment was down 19. Uh, that speaks to the promotional activity that's likely to happen for the ne- for the next quarter and perhaps a quarter ahead. So, you know, in terms of margin and being able to defend those margins, I think the fact that they've gotten that inventory story a bit under control uh, does bode well. As far as whether or not it's an inflection point or a turning point, as you know, Harvard whiz, the inflection mm-hmm. point doesn't necessarily mean that it's a quadratic equation. So we Whoa, might just. has anyone we might, ever gone quadratic we on this yeah, show before? That's, first. That's we might just flatten and continue to sell off. But with that said, I do still think that, the, to Tim's point, the spread between Target and Walmart, which I think is about 10 turns, is still compelling here.
1: Yeah. Mike, what was your take here?
5: Yeah, I mean, we own both Walmart and Target. And obviously, a lot of the things that everybody was just talking about are positives. You know, some of the things that were pressuring Target also, they, they had some uh, political pressure. Obviously, there was a little bit of boycott flack earlier this year that was a little bit problematic and it seems like there's a little bit of that buzz still sort of following it around but that kind of thing is eventually going to pass I believe and so I think that helps sort of price that discount in and uh, you know it was very cheap uh two days ago it's not quite as cheap now but it's still cheaper than it usually is it's cheaper than the market and it's well cheaper uh, than Walmart as Bonwin was just pointing out so I think you can still continue to own it here and, and you know I don't think that there's a huge risk that it's going to sort of retrace back to those levels that we saw uh, a week ago.
1: Can we extrapolate at all in terms of what this could mean for a Macy's, which saw a monster, we we were just talking Mm -hmm. about this, Macy's was up 7%, dollar source. The the parts of retail that were not left for dead, but really people were sort of giving up hope because of the consumer, the pressure on the consumer. They found um, some life today on the back of target earnings.
2: They found some life, but we were talking before the show. So the the P.E. multiple went from, I don't know, four, a little under four. And we would just saying, imagine if it were like seven. <laughs> I mean, that you know, so much upside here. Macy's has really gotten their act together. Was that to me or to Mike? What? To not me, two, that? Yeah. Oh, OK. Um, and I, so I, the balance sheet has been cleaned up. I don't own it, but it is sort of interesting. God, that cheap. And it's not a disaster. That That's interesting. I know.
3: Yeah, I, I think it was a case where, again, the expectations were so low here. I mean, it's just hard to, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, I look at the, the, the story here, though, overall, is I don't think the consumer is necessarily in a better place. I don't think anything we heard. I mean, when I hear that Kohl's is, you know, when Kohl's gets a, a, a three day, 25 percent move, you know, off of some other stuff in the market, that doesn't really impress me. Um, I, I think we still have some dynamics with the consumer that are, are really the bigger tell. I mean, the bottom line is uh, the guide for the fourth quarter is still to be, you know, down kind of mid five percent in terms of state, same store sales comps. TJX, which has been a darling, um, reported decent numbers yeah. they beat. And, and, and yet the guide was nothing that special and a place where on valuation, this is a company that now looks kind of relative to peers expensive.
1: Yeah. Bonwin, your take on TJX?
4: Uh, Honestly, I think this one, you you might want to look at buying a pullback. I was surprised. I know we talked earlier. I thought their quarter was relatively strong and they didn't kitchen sink the guidance. It was just a bit conservative. You know, it was still in line, you know, probably like the bottom quartile in terms of what their guidance was. But I didn't think that they said anything or did anything that would have given me the impulse to go out and sell. So, in fact, I think if we start to roll over, that's probably one Mm -hmm. of the names, trade down complex that I might look to add.
1: We got Walmart (laughs) coming out tomorrow morning. And so, Mike, I mean, if if Walmart, has guidance that's you know decent isn't this a tell when does it become a tell on the consumer at what point how many data points do we need target plus walmart yeah. seems like a pretty pretty good tell on the consumer we should have that
5: so it's interesting you point out so what is a tell on the consumer i think it depends on that consumer right so walmart and target to a certain extent are going to be appealing to similar consumers at least in some of their core product areas you know tjx And Macy's are a different kind of a story. You know, Macy's, if one was inclined to play it, I mean, it's just got so much leverage on the balance sheet, which I know Karen can speak to. You know, if you're trying to, you know, play it as a trade to the upside, I could see why you might do that. But I don't know necessarily that, you know, there you really have to worry about whether or not they get their product mix uh, the right way. And in Walmart's case, I mean, with things like grocery, is grocery about strength of the consumer or the cheap? You know, products like cleaning stuff, is that really a tell on the consumer? They're going to buy those things anyway. And to the extent that you have other products like electronics and things like that, if they are going to shop for them right now in a higher rate environment, those kinds of bigger purchases, they're more likely to buy them from a place like Walmart. Uh, We happen to own Walmart and we own Target, too. So we didn't really have it on as a pairs trade. And we own TJX as well. Um, You know, I think the consumer on the discretionary side, the big purchases, that's still going to be under a lot of pressure.
3: Yeah. It, one of the things that, that we have to go back to the CPI, it's not great for Walmart. You know, if you think about CPI was is 2.1 for food at home, it was up 5.4 for restaurants. So restaurants are doing better. I just think that the food inflation story, it was so last year. And I think there's no question that Walmart does better in that environment. There's no question Walmart uh, beats on price. It gets people into the stores, et cetera, et cetera. But, but as someone that's long Walmart, uh, not as long as I was and slowly been, I, I would say, trading out of the position, I, I think it, it's it's such a good story. It's been such a good story. But I think the bar is very high into tomorrow's
1: numbers. Karen, I mean, if the guidance is pretty decent for the holiday quarter, uh-huh. why aren't we willing to say that the consumer is doing OK, Target plus Walmart? That's a pretty good You're right. getting discretionary plus non-discretionary, the read on that.
2: Well, I don't know. They'll say, I mean, it seems like, well, look at TJX for a second, go back mm-hmm. to that. They chose conservative guidance. This is right. an a under-promise and over-deliver kind of management team, which is what you want. And Walmart, I don't think, is in the business of trying to hype there, for sure. Um, actually, they don't really like giving guidance. Um, but I think the stocks could have been so oversold that even if the consumer isn't in the best shape, they were discounting a consumer who is just stopping spending dead in the water. I think that the pendulum always swings way too far, and I think that's what happened here.
1: All right. Our next guest came in uh, on the start of the month with a bold call that it was time to buy all assets. That was after the Treasury announced it would slow the pace of bond auctions. Since then, stocks and bonds have been on a red hot run. Today, Andy Constant of Dam Spring is back with a new call. This time he is saying sell all assets. Andy, of course, is the CEO and CIO of Damp Spring. Andy, good to have you back. So hey, Melissa, thanks for in, me. you're in cash now. <laughs> That's what your portfolio <laughs> so, looks like.
6: So what I've done uh, is um, I have two portfolios, a beta portfolio, which is a long term passive long assets portfolio. I raised about 30 percent cash. So now I'm only about 70 percent invested. And for my alpha portfolio, which is a market timing multi-month horizon portfolio, uh, I went short assets uh, fairly aggressively.
1: What's the next move, do you think? What gets what gets you off the sidelines, so to speak? Yeah. So I think what you
6: have to recognize is that this um, Treasury surprise that we talked about uh, on Halloween uh, or the day after, you know, really created a big move in assets. S&P up 8 percent, NASDAQ up 10 percent. 10-year and 30-year bond yields fell 50 basis points. The TLT went up 7 percent. You know, those are huge moves. And what I would say is that, you know, I make an estimation of what this Reduction in supply had, and it's really overshot in a significant way. So the we have limited, we've had limited data in the last few um, weeks. There's been Fed speak. There's been the presser from Powell, and there's been some you know data that has been consistent with what we've known for a long time that the economy is slowing, inflation is falling towards target, and you know that's really the only thing that's changed since the uh the uh QRA on on 111 and so to me the market has just significantly overshot which means that uh once again the um impact of higher of higher long term rates which the fed has been championing 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 um for the um, to, uh, uh, to make their job easier is no longer there. And so that makes me worry that the Fed is going to have to once again stay at current rates or even hike over the next couple of um, meetings. And however, and I think this is important, though the supply was less than expected, It's still huge. We have $350 billion of bonds to be absorbed in the first quarter. And we saw the the auction on Thursday of the 30-year, which was the worst auction in a long, long time. And I don't know for sure whether this supply is going to get absorbed well, even though it's less than expected. So I'm fairly bearish on bonds. I would expect long-term bond yields to rise. And that'll take the bid out of equities.
2: Andy, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Excellent call both ways. So I know I've read your stuff and I know you think we're just back to the beginning of where we started, maybe in it was a late July, early August of we are going to see another QRA number that is very high. And we'll be back to this same thing again. Is that what you're would that be the sort of catalyst if we do get that number and a big sell off then for you to maybe reverse course or no?
6: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a long way off. You know, the next QRA is on July, on June, January 31st, and we have a lot of economic data. We have year-end, we have a, the beginnings of earnings season, and we have two Fed meetings. And so, there's a lot of things that could cause markets to go up or down. I think they'll go down because of this supply overhang. And then come January, we're likely to see a significantly greater supply, and that should push us back down, yields back up to five, five and a quarter, five and a half, and equities will struggle to stay above 4,000 in that environment. And so, yes, the answer would be um, if we do see such a move in markets, that's when I'd get back into assets and out of cash and cover shorts.
3: Andy, but can I if I hear you right, um, the market, which in the last few days has certainly done to Fed funds also a lot. Right. So you have put maybe, you know, four hikes into next year, um, you know, kind of reiterate it, your view is no way Fed is near this. And we and we know Fed funds doesn't have to be in line with dot plots, et cetera. But is, is the market overreacted there?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. You know, we, we two years did sell off a lot today, but um, certainly since, and we're back to where they were 15 days ago. But after the CPI number, four cuts got priced in. And I guess the big point I'm trying to make is that if long term assets, including bonds and stocks, are easy, financial conditions are easy, the Fed has no choice but to keep the front end as tight as they can which will be either a long pause where you get no cuts at all, or even hikes if the um, economics uh, numbers start warming up as the financial conditions start start moving through the market and through the economy, given how easy they've become all of a sudden.
1: Hmm. Andy, thank you. Always great to get your take and to hear about your calls. Andy Constant of Damp Spring. So we're in this vicious cycle. You know, markets take off because they're excited about the Fed being um, on the sidelines. Financial conditions start to ease, and then we're back at the, <laughs> the point where the Fed has to um, possibly hike rates. Bondoine, I mean, this is just sort of like it sounds like we're just going to be bouncing around here.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I think his call to get long was absolutely mm-hmm. spot on. I talked to a lot of smart money people who were just, you know, they they lamented the fact they had gone to cash so much. With that said. I just don't see the hikes in the inflation data now, and I'm not sure that, that market conditions are necessarily going to move the Fed to do that. Um, with that said, if you start to see a tick back up in retail spending and inflation and things of that, that nature, I can certainly see how that's a, a, a probabilistic outcome. But um, I, I think what you're seeing is a bit more volatility, to Tim's part, that you had seen for rate cuts price in the next year. I think that is extremely premature. And and it flies in the face of what the Fed is saying, higher for longer. Mm -hmm.
3: There's nothing in the data. And the economic data, to be clear, disinflation is very different than an economy that's hitting a wall. Uh, I do think that the consumer is running out of gas. I do think that the joblessness will will move up to five percent. But but the the, the economy we have right now is still quite strong. There's there's little in this for the Fed. It's a great environment for equities. I mean, that's an environment. That's an environment where today you kind of started to sort through and have the the normalcy of if equities are up a little bit, bonds should be down a little bit. That's kind of what goes. What what we've seen is and this is the conversation. Equities and stocks have been moving in the same direction. Uh, The trend for bond yields. I think it's been higher, arguably, at the short end of the curve. I I realize COVID and even uh, the Fed getting very scared at the end of December 2018 um, was a reversal. But rates have been going higher since 2013. Um, I think rates are not going a lot lower. I think rates are going to continue to start to move higher. And this is after, you know, decades of a bull market in in bonds.
2: So just one other thing, you know, we always talk about the market is not a monolith, right? Right. So you have these really high flyer names, high multiple names I think we could very well see those start to, you know, come back to Earth a little bit. And then you have we talked about the uh, IWM yesterday, the Russell 2000 of names that have just been, you know, shellacked and that those could do well in the same environment where the other ones don't.
1: After the break, some earnings alerts coming your way. Uh, big moves out of Cisco and Palo Alto Networks in the after-hour session. will bring you the numbers from the quarters next. Plus, don't look now, but Disney shares are at six-month highs. Mm-hmm. The investor that is sending shares higher today and what parts of the business are, he, uh, are in focus right now. Don't go anywhere fast when he's back in two. At Morgan Stanley, old-school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com us. Investing involves risk, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC.
0: Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: We've got a news alert on the Senate vote on the government spending bill. Emily Wilkins has got the details. Emily.
7: Well, Melissa, we're going to be uh, just seeing in a little bit the Senate is going to be voting on that stopgap measure that is going to avert a shutdown this Friday and take the federal funding through. Uh, part of that is going to be that dual track. So part of it's going to be funded until January 19th. Part of it's going to be funded until February 2nd. Uh, the Senate was able to work it out. I mean, this is widely a bipartisan bill, doesn't have a lot of conservative priorities, just kind of funds the government as it is. And it gives lawmakers more time to work through actually funding the government. So after this, it's really going to be going to Joe Biden's desk. He's going to, Sign it, and we're going to see that shutdown averted. But it's going to then kick the can down the road, and we could have some potential major headaches next year in January.
1: Yeah, and that road's not too long. I mean, the can doesn't have much to travel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Emily, thank you, <laughs> Emily Wilkins. I mean, with the holidays, you know, it's like Halloween, then Thanksgiving comes so quickly, and then it's be, and then it's going to be shutdown time again. We're going to be here talking about this yet again, but not to be pessimistic about the process <laughs> let's get to uh, two earnings <laughs> alerts for you check out shares of palo alto networks and cisco systems after reporting results cisco being in the top and bottom lines but shares getting crushed on its cuts to full year revenue and profit outlooks let's get right to christina parts Nebulous for more on this quarter christina
8: Thank you. Well, I was on the call. Supply chain constraints. They said that plagued Cisco for quarters has now shifted downstream to, quote, the implementation stage. In other words, customers are just taking time to onboard, which is driving Cisco's weak guidance. And analysts actually challenged that statement, wondering if this is really just a bigger problem of demand, not inventory. CEO Chuck Robbins denied that reasoning. But Q2, like you mentioned, and full year outlook were very light. The midpoint of full year revenue range was over or I should say over three billion dollars less than the street estimate. CEO Chuck Robbins said they saw weakness, quote, mostly from larger enterprise service providers and cloud customers, but that they believe this phase is, quote, temporary and see a return to order growth in the second half of this year. On AI, artificial intelligence management said they already took $500 million in infrastructure to support AI networks and have a line of sight of a billion dollars of orders and, quote, that our teams feel pretty good they're going to get. Cisco reiterating its $20 billion acquisition of cybersecurity firm Splunk, which is still expected to close in Q3 of 2024. Shares, though, still reacting to that negative guidance and concerns about product growth. Mel?
1: Is there a time period associated with that $1 billion in orders No, nope, AI? I,
8: I double-checked, went through the transcription again, and all he just said was, we see a $1 billion pipeline. Our teams are confident we're going to get it. That was it.
1: Okay. Christina, thank you. Christina Parts Nevelis. Um, Tim, you are a shareholder. I have
3: a position in Cisco. And as I pointed out to a man who knows a lot about options and the lady next to me who does this sometimes and not in any way trying to implicate camera with my selling upside calls is nowhere near as (laughs) good as buying puts, even though they kind of are the same. And in the case of Cisco, look, what I liked about the company going into these numbers is 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 that their business was not only strong in their core, but they were they were certainly they've been making this move into software and cyber. And these are high margin businesses. They've been doing it great job. Uh, the valuation at around 14 times not expensive. But but what what I also heard the company say is that their networking business is really slowing down. And that's in contrast to what we heard from Juniper and what we heard from Arista. So, I mean, to me, relative to peers, that's why this reaction, I think, is what it is. They also said uh, they have uh, one to two quarters uh, of, of shipped products already that have yet to be implemented. That sounds like a company that's not going to see a lot of demand anytime soon. So I, I, I believe this is an overreaction. There was nothing rosy about this outlook, though, uh, and it's getting destroyed.
1: Yeah. Mike, how?
5: Yeah. I mean, this is a tough one because, you know, as Tim was just pointing out, this wasn't a terribly expensive company going into it, or so it would seem. You know, also interesting, he was just talking about the options market. The options market wasn't expecting a whole lot. This is a stock that typically moves about five, five and a half percent off of earnings. The options market was implying a move of less than that. So, You know, I think these are the situations where you really need to be aware. you know, if you start seeing some of this complacency, uh, whether it's priced into options or the stock. I mean, what's interesting is that it seems to me that even mildly disappointing news, and maybe this case, this is somewhat more than mildly disappointing as the price action would reflect. You have to watch that downside because uh, stocks seem to be getting punished pretty badly when you see this kind of guidance outlook.
1: I mean, somebody with a bearish view of the world might point to this and say, this is the slowdown in enterprise spending that we are all Historically, waiting for. And we usually, we, in the past, we have heard it from Cisco Systems. Yeah, once I mean, upon a time when this, it was the bellwether. This
3: was the company, you know, we listened to John Chambers with bated breath. We sat on the edge of our seat to every word he said. That was 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I look, it's not a great tell on enterprise. I don't think it, it's... It's really the dark cloud, though, that that it would have been.
1: Palo Alto, meantime, uh, also beating street estimates for the current quarter, but seeing shares tank on weak guidance on billings. Pippa Stevens got more on that. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, it really was that disappointing billings guidance that is sending the
7: stock tumbling, and the CEO addressing it at the top of the earnings call, saying just now the street might be, quote, confused about the billings guidance noting the variability is due to payment conversations they're having with customers. So management said that during Q1, the cost of money remained a constant discussion and that significant focus on the topic is becoming the new normal adding that they're now seeing more of that variability in billings than before because of the financing mix and contract duration. But they emphasize that this is not impacting revenue. They said they see strong RPO and low churn, arguing that the billings guidance is a, quote, cosmetic impact. Now, overall, management said the pace of malicious activity and focus on cybersecurity is fueling a strong demand environment. But clearly, Melissa, the street not loving this report. Back to you.
1: Yeah, Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens. When I hear a focus on costs of money, I think of rates. When I think of the financing, the the cost to finance, um, whatever purchases, bond. I mean, these are all things that if you believe in higher for longer, then this is the new reality.
4: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with the rate story. I mean, this is one of those high flyers that... Justified the multiple because everything cybersecurity related seemed to justify it. But when you get a hiccup, you're really going to start to see it. It surprises me that honestly the stock's not down a bit more. I mean, it's up about eighty percent year to date, and I think earnings have grown forty percent or so year over year. So you are you have seen growth, but I think a lot of that was priced into the stock. I would have expected it honestly to maybe be down another five percent or so. Mm.
1: And do not miss a huge slate of interviews on Mad Money tonight. Jim is talking with the CEOs of Cisco, Palo Alto, and Target all right here on CNBC top of the hour. There's a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next.
0: A new activist investor setting its sights on Disney, just as the media giant seems to be rebounding from multi-year lows. What Value Act might be looking to get out of the company and what it could mean for the stock? Plus, U.S.-China relations taking center stage as Biden meets with Xi Jinping on the West Coast. The latest out of that and the big CEO dinner to keep an eye on. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. We're back right after this. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Disney hitting their highest level since May after news activist investor Value Act is building up a stake in the media giant. According to CNBC's activist Spotlight, the fund began buying the stock over the summer during the Hollywood strikes at an average cost per share in the low 80s. The company believes Disney's parks and consumer products business alone could be worth 80 bucks a share of the stock, which hit a nine-year low last month, is now up nearly 20% from those levels. Do you agree with that valuation, $80 for the
3: consumer part of the business? I do. I, and it's, you know, it's two thirds. Well, it's all the EBITDA right now. But, but I, you know, it's kind of like you get getting the streaming business for free. Um, you know, I don't know what Value Act does, but I think that if the name implies they, they are looking for companies they think are cheap. Um, and, and I think Disney's got a lot of problems with with their core business. But the we're not even doing an asset based valuation. We're doing an earnings multiple. And, and I just think that's where Disney has come. Look, the stocks had a decided move, both above the 200. And this is a six month high in the stock. This is... Is the kind of moment we, we've heard about, whether it's Nelson Peltz. I mean, we've the activist story is not a reason to go by Disney. Um, if you're listening to an activist who's having apparently discussions with management, um, but uh, where there's an argument in favor of the valuation, that's where you listen. It's I think like, you do.
1: It's like a kicker, though, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I agree. Yeah. I would agree that it's not the reason. But I mean, if you believe that Iger is on the right track, that additional pressure from three different activists, I would think kind of helps a little
2: bit at the margin. Maybe Although these are different types of activists. Value Act is a very, very long term, mm-hmm. really tries to see themselves as a partner, um, not really wanting to get into high profile fights, anything like that. So if you're Bob Iger, that's a much better partner than a peltz, than a peltz, <laughs> let's say. Right. And does he then solve the problem of disgruntled shareholders by saying, see, I did put somebody new on the board? Oh. Right. Right. Value Act very often goes on the board mm-hmm. and they're partners for a long time. Does that does that give them enough cover? Maybe. Yeah. Mike.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's this is a situation where I think that some of their businesses that have actually been doing pretty well. I, I don't know that there's a whole lot more upside, for example, in the parks area. They had some big price increases. I think they're probably bumping up against what consumers can absorb there. Uh, obviously, they have the Hulu uh, acquisition that's going to chew up a little bit of money, and you know they are already focused on big cost uh, savings. You know, I think they targeted something like seven and a half billion dollars worth of cost savings already. Uh, you know, I think it's probably just reasonably valued here at uh, somewhere between 21 and 22 times earnings. Probably, uh, there's still some uh, some work to be done.
1: Coming up, high stakes on the West Coast. All the headlines out of President Biden's meeting with Xi Jinping and how tech, AI, and the global economy could be impacted. Plus, Visa on the record. The stock is up nearly 20% this year. We're getting a read on consumer credit conditions. We've got the details when Fast Money returns.
0: Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right
4: after this.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. Today's blockbuster Biden Xi summit underway. The pair breaking for lunch after wrapping their first of three sessions in the meeting in Woodside, California, in an effort to smooth heightened tensions between the world's two largest economies. Eamon Javers joins us now with the very latest. Eamon.
9: Hey there, Melissa. Well, it was a flawlessly produced scene today. President Biden warmly greeting Xi Jinping at a lavish estate in Woodside, California, with a handshake designed to show the world that the two nations are not spiraling into hostility. Inside the meeting room, warm words of welcome as both leaders reached for de-escalatory language for the televised portion of the summit. Both men cited their long personal relationship, which dates back to before either one was president of his country.
10: Mr. President, we know each other for a long time. We haven't always agreed, which would not surprise anyone. But our meetings have always been candid, straightforward, and useful.
9: And for his part, Xi Jinping nodded toward the tempestuous history of the strategic relationship.
2: China-U.S. relationship has never been smooth sailing over the past 50 years or more, and it always faces problems of one kind or another. Yet it has kept moving forward amid twists and turns.
9: Now, the rest of this meeting is taking place behind closed doors right now at the Filoli House and Garden Estate, which is about 30 minutes south of San Francisco. So the next indication of how things are going and if any agreements have been made should come at 7 p.m. East Coast time when President Biden is expected to hold a press conference with reporters. But, Melissa, we're told they are running a little bit behind schedule, so that timing could slip this evening. Back over to you.
1: Um, Will it be a President Biden next to President Xi sort of press conference where they both take— uh, questions we do from international? No.
9: Okay. We do not expect the typical, like, two-and-two two format that we've seen yeah. with other leaders. We think we're going to see Biden uh, on his own. But uh, they've told us a couple things to expect today that haven't uh, worked out exactly as planned. So uh, we'll wait and see what we see.
1: It will be interesting to see what the Chinese state media, how they— um you know, cover it tomorrow morning. Eamon, thank you, Yep. Eamon Jabbers. Our next guest says the real show will come at tonight's CEO summit. Safinat, chief investment strategist and honorary professor of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, John Rutledge, joins us now. John, great to have you with us.
10: Great to see you, Melissa, how are you?
1: Good, this is a $2,000 plate sort of dinner. And I'm just wondering, who needs who more uh, when it comes to U.S. CEOs and President Xi?
10: Well, you know, the, the the table that she is sitting at is actually forty thousand dollars a chair. So this is an American style uh, uh, CEO dinner. Uh, she is uh, she is trying to win back the hearts and minds of the investors and the CEO. And he's got a he's got a big job to do. And I don't think he's going to succeed.
1: Um, I, I think that a, a lot of U.S. companies are afraid of the lack of rule of law, of, of potentially being detained, of having offices shut down, um, retaliation. Uh, i mean take a look at foxconn granted it's not a u.s company but basically you know it, it produces the iphone for apple and it's being used sort of as a tool um to get terry go who's running for for president in taiwan and so is there anything that she can say because i doubt he's going to say you know what I, I i promise you that you come here and this is the rule of law and we will obey that i don't think he's going to give sure. that up
10: well you know his his pitch today is the rodney king is why can't we all get along And the problem is that China has one person running the entire country. He has taken over complete control of China. And in an autocracy, one guy wakes up every morning, and if he has a bad uh, breakfast, uh, something bad can happen in policy. Xi's policies have proved unstable so far. The tech attack that he did, the uh, COVID uh, issues uh, and uh, uh, Hong Kong. And so uh, I think that uh, that's not going to change. The national security law makes it that much worse and more dangerous. So I'd be trying to move my business gradually over someplace else.
3: John is Tim, but uh, we, we've we've certainly priced a lot of negativity both into some of the U.S. firms that have direct China exposure that hasn't been as strong. Some of the geopolitical risk, but certainly in in the terms of the Chinese names that trade here, some of their biggest tech companies for political reasons there. But have we over? priced in all of these things that we all know and is the chinese economy relative to where these companies are trading um I- I- is this an oversell uh,
10: the economy is in serious trouble as as uh, as we know uh they they're doing things with the central bank they're doing things with the sp- spending money on housing but the real estate problems there are very serious and they're going to get worse before they get better and so i i think that uh regarding the markets answer your question depends on who you are. Uh, I'm a long-term investor. Uh, I, I don't care what happens to the price tomorrow. I care about the prices in 10 years. And China is just too risky on a fundamental basis for me to want to be there at all, no matter what the price is. But if you had a shorter horizon in trading, I suspect from a trading perspective, the Chinese markets are going to do well this week because we're having happy time in uh, San Francisco and only nice things are going to be uh, going to be said CEOs don't make short term decisions at least they shouldn't and so if you're committing capital to a place for 10 20 or 50 years that then you need to think more like a fundamental investor and be careful of your supply chain and
4: be careful of your sourcing John bottom one here. Thanks for being with us. Uh, quick question: So, given the economic decline, particularly in the real estate sector that we've seen in China, at what point do you believe Xi Jinping, if at all, would be incentivized to kind of truly step forward in more than just a symbolic way?
10: Well, the problem is he can do that on any given day, and then the day after that, he can change his mind again. He's actually made moves of that sort: will open up, will do incentives for business. He's appealing for more for FDI. But uh, I think when he uh, the national security law was basically a goodbye FDI law, uh, it doesn't make sense to be physically located in China now for a U.S. uh, executive. Uh, uh, China will come back one day. I'm a long term China optimist and always have been. But I don't think it will happen while they're run by such a dramatic one man autocracy. It's going to take groupthink like we had before to pull that off.
1: John, great to have you with us. Thanks for your take, John Rutledge. Pleasure. Uh, Mike Ko, are you also wondering about uh, whether or not companies should be in China at this point? I mean, if you are taking the long, long long-term look, maybe you can get positive. But in the short term, is it just a sort of a fool's errand to be there?
5: You wouldn't invest in this kind of environment. Look, you know, if you're thinking about investing in any kind of an area, one of the things you're most concerned about are stability and the rule of law as opposed to the rule of one person and their you know capricious attitudes. So I think that's a hazard. We actually did buy Baba going into this. We've only held it, I think uh, just a couple of days, so we're only up a buck or two in it right now. But uh, you know in the longer term, you you just don't invest in situations as unstable as that. it's It's a significant business risk. And even if you are buying something uh, that is exposed to that kind of risk, you have to discount it materially because of it. I
3: think uh, I hear you on that. Uh, I think Bob has been significantly discounted. And and I think the spinoff of the subsidiaries is a driver. And I I think he priced this really uh, at bargain basement, some of the parts. But uh, look, EM suffering because of China. And I don't think that gets a lot better.
1: Coming up, we're digging into Visa. Shares up nearly 20% this year, and we're getting an inside look at how the company is navigating the current state of the markets and the consumer next. Plus, the obesity drug battle rages on. Shares of Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk taking a breather as one syringe maker heads higher. We've got the details behind the moves when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Visa of nearly 20% this year and our own Kate Rooney just sat down a short while ago uh, and spoke with the executive chairman and former CEO. They spoke about the impact of return to work on their business, his outlook on the global economy and much, much more. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So Al Kelly is among the thousands of executives
7: here at the APEC CEO Summit meeting alongside global leaders from APEC. And Al Kelly, he's now the executive chairman of Visa, former CEO. He's also a co-chair of this host committee for the summit. He says consumers looking resilient from his vantage point. He did say there's been a decline in average transactions with people buying more generic brands at a drop in fuel prices. But he says transactions are getting a boost with people going back to work.
3: It's a big deal. When anybody thinks about the consumer during the day, many people buy a cup of coffee or a bagel, they go get something for lunch, they pay for their their commutation or transit ticket on the way in, pay for it on the way way back. So if everybody, if 70% of people did that, that's four extra transactions that are relatively low value transactions.
7: Visa also announced some strategic initiatives for APEC, which Al Kelly said is a huge opportunity for the company.
3: We're certainly uh, very excited about continuing to grow uh, our business in these countries, many of which have a tremendous upside, because many of them are still very cash societies. 50%, 60% of the business is in cash. So for a company like
4: ours, there's there's great opportunity.
7: We will hear a lot more from heavy hitters tomorrow, including Elon Musk. We're gonna hear from Sam Altman of OpenAI and Google Google CEO Sundar Pichai. Melissa, back to you.
1: Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. It's interesting how granular of a look he has, right, into the consumer and and how exactly they are spending that money.
2: You would think he, yeah, has a great look. I mean, billions of transactions, and they can see all of it. They should run a fund and just use that data. (laughs) No, seriously. I don't. Maybe unless it's illegal, then of course they shouldn't (laughs) do it. But if they have a look into how well the consumer is doing. Yeah. You would think thus they have a look into travel. They know who's traveling and what, you know, how much they're spending and that's an incredibly valuable data set. Yeah, Mike.
5: It's a, well that data set is partially available of course, you know, alternative data that is the kind of thing that people are capturing so, so a lot of funds actually are able to sort of take advantage of of this kind of information. Um, you know, it's not just satellites of, of parking lots outside of malls. So this is definitely one of the things that people are looking at. It's a good growth story, Visa. I think it will continue to be.
1: All right. Coming up, two European countries saying, oh, no, to Ozempic, sending shares of the weight loss drug companies sinking. We'll bring you the details next. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Supply concerns prompting Belgium to temporarily ban the use of Ozempic as a weight loss treatment, according to reports. And German regulators are considering banning exports of the drug as Europe's health systems grapple with shortages. Shares of Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly are both getting jabbed. Oh. Oh. On, these mm. headlines. <laughs> on the flip side, though, check out shares of Catalan surging on results thanks to the weight loss drug boom. Catalan manufactures the pre-filled syringes that deliver the GLP-1 drugs. Um, interesting because, you know, they had had exposure to COVID as those revenues were coming off. They talked about how now the GLP-1s are going to sort of offset that decline in, in COVID vaccines that we are seeing uh, more broadly here. Um, but Karen, what do you make of this, the declines, particularly in the drug makers?
2: I think it was just, you know, so much money has gone into them, right? And they and they run up so much. And now the market's sort of looking elsewhere a little bit that uh, it's not quite the shiny thing for maybe just a moment. It might be back to going the shiny, being the bright, shiny thing. But I think it was just so far so fast and money just went to something the, else. the
3: message in here is... As always, we know it's very political, regulatory environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, but this is not this is actually talking about the demand. In other yeah. words, this is there's there's no question. All this is doing is endorsing the reason. And this is this is not going to hold them up. Uh, so supply constraints and dynamics, we get it. They want to get as much supply into the market as they can. Um, but this is you know really underscoring the bull case.
4: Yeah, I think probably there's some high frequency in here as well, because if you just read the headline, you see restrictions all right? and immediately you want to sell. And given the, all the profits that you've had, you want to be first out of the door and ask questions later. With this said, to, with, with that said, to Tim's point, I really do think this all underscores demand, whether it's an export ban or saying you can only use this for diabetes at the moment, uh, just speaks to you know the massive demand for, the, for both drugs.
1: Up next, final trade. The final trade, Let's go around the
5: horn, Mike Co. Yeah, workday reports in two weeks. Twenty percent top line growth, and probably better on the EPS side if margins improve.
1: Tim Seymour, Intel
3: is actually leading the semiconductor index over the last six months. It's outperformed by sixteen percent. I think part of this is positioning. I think part of this is obviously evaluation dynamic. Part of this is a company that is making the right moves.
2: Karen Faderman. Yes. So one that Shim and I know well, uh, which is Pfizer, seemed to cross back across the $30 line today, which used to be, incredible, you know, unimaginable, but now is upside for them. So I would say Pfizer right here, I think the worst is behind. Bono and Eisen.
4: Strong quarter and what I perceive to be more of a, a conservative outlook rather than a bad outlook. TJX on weakness.
1: All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now you <laughs> warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.